Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Story Blender. This week's episode comes to you from the Story Vault, our collection of past interviews. We're excited to share it with you and we hope you enjoy it. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, James Rollins is the number one New York Times best-selling author of international thrillers that have been translated into more than 40 languages. His Sigma series has been lauded as one of the top crowd pleasers by the New York Times and one of the hottest summer reads by People magazine. In each novel acclaimed for its originality, Rollins unveils unseen worlds, scientific breakthroughs, and historical secrets. And he does it all at breakneck speed and with stunning insight. He lives in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and he is with us here today. So, Jim, thanks for uh, taking the time. I appreciate it. I'm actually in the smoky Sierra Nevada (laughs) today. Now, um, you're known for high-concept thrillers or high-concept stories. Some people describe your stories in this way. Do you think of them as high-concept, and what does that mean you know, to you, or do you have, do you approach things from that perspective at all? I mean, I, I don't think I dismiss it in its entirety. I mean, yeah. I'm always looking for, you know, trying to build a story that is going to appeal to the, the largest spectrum of readers out there. And, and at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with aspects that excite me. If, you know, at this point, if I'm not excited about a story, my reader isn't going to either. Yeah. I think readers have a, a innate, they've got a good nose on them. They can, they can almost smell when authors bored with their work. Um, I think it comes out on the page. Um, so I'm always looking for, you know, where can I tell an exciting story? I'm going to, you know, to the best of my ability, build a, you know, a roller coaster that I'm going to send my my readers uh, up and down and twists and turns, which is always, of course, fun. But at the yeah. same time, I'm looking for that higher concept, and by that I mean I'm looking for, you know, why should you be reading this book? Is there there's something more to this novel than just the popcorn entertainment of that roller coaster ride? Uh, you know, is there some something that's you know more topical, something that's uh, maybe you know that ripped from the headlines uh, type of of uh, concept that might be sure. of interest to a, to a reader. So I'm always looking for that also. Now, some people, um, when they think of high concept, I've heard people say the higher the concept, the harder the believability. And I think that um, people really like your books for, you know, kind of like bigger-than-life heroes, but also grounded in, you know, in believability. Is that something you really work toward, is this idea of making the stories believable, even though, I mean, some of your stories are, you know, uh, uh, sprawling and, and, and have to do with scientific and historical breakthroughs and all this that, that might seem hard to believe at first, but is believability one of those keys for you? It is. I mean, I, I think at this point, when it comes to that that lack of believability that can be in some of these bigger stories, yeah. is two things. One, it's character. Um, you know, yes, it's it's uh, you could have that. You know, want that you want that bigger than life character on on the page. But by bigger than life, I don't necessarily mean this is a character that's going to, you know, rip open his shirt and have a big giant S across his shirt there. And he's, you know, he's invincible. And he, you know, if he gets shot, he just shrugs it off and keeps going. It's hard to relate as a reader to that character. Um, So I can definitely put that character like that through some exciting pieces. But, you know, if I dangle that character off of a cliff, you're not going to so much worry if he's going to fall off if you're not as emotional. Tied to that character, 
So, you know, when I say bigger than life, I'm just saying, you know, create a character on the page that, you know, might do or say something that you uh, in your normal life might not do or say, because uh, just doing that alone sort of elevates the character without putting them into the stratosphere. Yeah. And then, of course, you want to lay in some, uh, you know, some details that, that, that people can relate to, like, like my main character of the series, Commander Pierce, um, is, you know, he's, he's a former Special Forces soldier, he's been retrained by Sigma to this, into different scientific disciplines, to be a field agent for DARPA, the Defense Department's Research and Development uh, Agency. And so, you know, he's a, he's a, a capable, uh, you know, soldier out there protecting against these various threats. But at the same time, he's got, a, you know, his own personal life. He's dealing with, uh, you know, two parents that are in, in you know, or specifically his father suffering from late on stages of, of Alzheimer and we've seen mm, the yeah. very big first book where you start seeing just the first sort of glimmers that there's something wrong with his dad to later on in this, this book where his dad's in the throes of, of some severe issues with, with Alzheimer's. And so now you have this character that um, you know is, is juggling the day job protecting the world uh, with his personal job of his responsibilities as a son with an ailing parent. And any reader who's you know uh, juggling personal and professional life, so I can relate to that character on a deeper level than just that, you know, he's a superhero, you know, super soldier type of character. They can relate to, you know, the the pull and push of, of personal responsibilities uh, against your professional goals or aims. Yeah, I like how that builds depth. You know, sometimes people complain about like a one-dimensional character or a, a cookie cutter or a cardboard character, whatever people call it. But I think in the way that you approach it, Yes, they have this amazing ability and an amazing life and, and stuff like this of saving the world. But also, down and dirty, I like that personal connection because that's where people can really identify with that character. Right. So, like, again, if I'm going to dangle Gray off of a cliff, hopefully you're going to care whether he falls off that cliff. <laughs> you know, I've, I've read some books where I literally don't care about the main character. And there was one book I was reading and it was just this whiny character and I was like, just please kill her off and move <laughs> on with the story. And that's I, not what you I believe I've encountered a few of those characters uh, in the past myself where it's like, <laughs> it's just cast you read eliminated, I'd be fine with it. Yeah, no kidding. Um, now your stories um, are just have this great imaginate, imagination and just imaginative approach to stories and storytelling. And some people have compared you to Michael Crichton and, and um, Dan Brown. And if you stuck him into a particle accelerator and you shot it out, here would come <laughs> James Rollins. And um, have you always had sort of this, this gift of asking what if and taking a, a small event or a small nugget of information from history or science? and expanding it into these amazing stories. Has that been something that you've kind of always has this imagination? Well, I, th I think, you know, my, my first love, and it's a poorly kept secret, that my prior profession was as a veterinarian. Uh, so that was always my first love was medicine, science, animals. And I knew, you know, growing up I wanted to be veterinarian. But, you know, I was raised with three brothers and three sisters, and I inadvertently became sort of the storyteller of the family. You nice. know, my goal was to spin these wild stories and, and try to get my brothers and sisters to believe something outlandish. And, you know, if tears were involved, all the better. <laughs> I call it lying. I call it storytelling. And, you know, today I'm pretty much doing the same thing. My goal is just to try to, you know, convince readers of these outlandish stories and if tears are involved, all the better. Um, you know, so it's, my, my process is that I'm always looking for, you know, what are the seeds in which I can, you know, ground a story and then, you know, grow it into something, something big and, and, uh, and boisterous. Um, and I've always got my antenna up for those seeds. I, I subscribe at this point to, I think, 24 different magazines. I have to recount. That might have changed recently. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm always looking for that historical tidbit, that maybe that piece of history that ends in a question mark, something I can, you know, maybe solve within the pages of a novel, or, or I'm looking for that, that piece of science that makes me go, what if, where is this headed, uh, you know, how might that challenge us? And then, you know, I just collect them. And it's not complicated. I just have one of those um, cardboard file boxes. And yeah. if I'm reading an article, you know, I cut it out, throw it in there. If I'm reading it online, I print it up, throw it in there. If I'm watching, you know, 
the National Geographic channel, the Discovery channel, and something pops up, make some notes, throw it in the box. Um, I don't organize it. It's chaotic. I, I prefer it to be chaotic because then weird things happen. This piece of science and that piece of history will end up uh, you know, in my hand, same hands at the same time as I'm sifting through it or on the floor as I'm trying to find out uh, you know, my next story idea. And only then do I begin to sort of see a connection because it just happens to be in my hand at the same time. This piece of history, this piece of science, I begin to see you know, how they might connect. And then I'll do some further research, see if there actually is a story there. Sometimes there's not. And then other times. It begins to sort of snowball, and I know this is the story I want to tell next. I like how it's a serendipitous, it's kind of organic process for you. Do you find that you then um, tend to plot out the stories and outline them, or do you follow along with that same approach of sort of seeing where things lead? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, yeah. because I am going to build that roller coaster, you know, I've got to, you know, have a few rivets in place. I've got to, you know, a few structure uh, pre-plotted out. You know, I generally, as a, as a rule, I'll know the beginning and I'll know the end and I'll know the sort of the three big tent poles that are going to hold up the story. Hmm. I, I'll know that before I start. But I don't necessarily know how A connects to B connects to C. Uh, to me, yeah. you know, one of the joys of writing is that discovery. You know, I like to sometimes sit down and have no idea what I'm writing today. Like today, <laughs> sitting down there, I have no idea what Gray's going to do right here. And then it ends up being a really exciting scene. And I don't think in the course of a week, a month, uh, I could ever sort of sit down and plot to a T. You know, yeah. every twist and turn that a story is going to take. I prefer over the course of, you know, the eight months in which I'm writing the first draft, I have eight months to come up with these clever little twists and turns that if I was forced to try to, you know, pre-plan that all out within a matter of a, a week or a month, I don't think it, it would have a been as imaginative. And to me, it would have been probably a little boring to write it if I knew exactly every twist and turn to the story. One thing that you just mentioned was that it's a moment of discovery or process of discovery for you. and made me think of Robert Frost once said, I have never yet started a poem whose ending I knew. Writing a poem is... a uh, journey of discovery, and uh, I think it's the same. At least it's the same for me when I'm writing a novel. And it sounds like that process of discovery is is similar to the way that you approach approach your. Yeah, book. I think it's a way of keeping it fresh. Like I mentioned before, is that you know readers can sense if, you, if the writer's bored. Yeah, um, and I think the way I can sometimes instill some innate sense of excitement is when I'm excited with a scene I'm writing. I think it's true, too. I, I, I do, where readers can have a good sense of if the author really is, you know, is passionate about it, believes in the story, or, or if it matters to, to him or her, um, those scenes. You know, when I think of novels that I've written, there are certain emotionally resonant scenes that have kind of really affected me when I've written them, and those tend to be the same scenes that people... Uh, write to me and say, oh, that one, that one scene where this happened. And I'm like, that's the same one that you know, I was thinking of. That It was like really resonant to me. You know, like I said, readers uh, really have a good nose when it comes to sort of reading behind the lines and have, you know, have a sense when a writer is excited about their own work or if they're bored with their own work. Um, so, again, yeah, sort yeah. of my, my method is a way of trying to keep that that feel of freshness in my writing because sometimes I don't know what I'm going to write that day. Now, your stories don't all take place in one location, to put it mildly, but you explore all sorts of different um, places around the world and different types of, of stories and storytelling. I know that some of our listeners are interested in how you research your books. Do you get on the ground in these different places or does it tend to be mostly online, that sort of thing? Um, how do you get started with researching some of these stories? It's a little bit of both. Um, yeah. You know, it, I did a, a spreadsheet at one point because I do get a, that question occasionally asked a lot during a Q&A session of a book talk where, you know, hey, Jim, you know, how, you know, how many of these places you write about have you actually been to? Yeah. And so I thought, well, I don't know. So I actually did a spreadsheet. This is not the, It's probably changed. So this is probably a good seven or eight books ago. At that point, I'd been to probably about 70 percent of the places I, I, I write about. So oh, it was some, you know, boots on the ground, uh, authenticity to some of those things. But to be honest with you, I very seldom travel for research. You know, if yeah. I'm writing a book set in Paris, uh, it's very rare I'll hop on a plane, fly to Paris, run around Paris, run back, you know, fly back home and write about it. 
my process is usually I just travel for the fun of it. <laughs> and uh, and good... I will take a bunch of pictures. I will... I'm notorious for walking to somebody in some village and saying, hey, tell me something that nobody knows about this place. Tell me a secret that, you know, you normally wouldn't share with somebody. And oftentimes they'll tell you. And oftentimes what they're telling me becomes that seed that, I, that I'm putting into that box uh, because it's really cool. Now, I don't know how, what I'm going to do with it, but I'll just throw it in the box that's cool. So when I get home, you know, I journal when I write, so I write some details of these places, things that I thought were cool, things, you know, places I've eaten, meals I've had. I take pictures. I just put in a big little uh, you know, scrapbook, for lack of a better term, and it goes on a shelf. And then down the line, it might be uh, you know a year, two years, like the book I wrote right now, to take a good portion of the book takes place in Maui. Um, I haven't been Maui in probably 10 years, but again, while traveling to Maui, I took a bunch of pictures, uh, landmarks that were really cool, settings I thought might make big good parts of a story. And so when I was writing this book, I just pulled that scrapbook down, and I had my research for that place all set to go. So I almost yeah. traveled and after the fact write about it. Oh, that's cool. I um, I found that people really do like that insider information. You know, where where um, well, like, I I like the approach that you say. Hey, tell me something that no one else knows. What's a secret about this place? And and um, in in one of my books, uh, one of the subplots had to do with the Jonestown massacre back in the seventies, and mm-hmm. so I was able to track down one of the three people who was still alive and had survived. Um, and walked out uh, of the compound that day. And so just asking him kind of the same questions like, what about that event, you know, did the media get wrong? What actually happened that day? And to get that insider information, I mean, it adds so much to a story. Hey, it's surprising what people will tell you. By yeah. the way, if you just preface your, your word, you know, hey, I'm an author working on this story, uh, you know, would you mind, you know, being my, uh, you know, mentor on this subject matter? Yeah. Um, it's surprising what they'll tell you. A lot of times, again, I'm dealing with science, so I'm looking for that, um, you know, that authenticity and that immediacy to the story because science changes very rapidly. And hmm. so history doesn't necessarily. I mean, sometimes our viewpoint of history changes, but science, you know, it's 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 a it's a it's a mutable target. I'm trying to hit with that with that dart, and I don't want the book uh, to feel dated even before it comes out. As you well know, you know, I come up with an idea, I research it, I write it. There is a year time or so between that time I turn in a, a manuscript to the time it gets published. So there's a, you know, generally, you know, at least two years from the time I get the idea to the time the book's published. And so the science can change very rapidly during those two years. And so I don't want my book to feel dated by the time it comes out. So rather than looking for that, uh, that book, which oftentimes, again, is two or three years old, the scientific information in that book, or even a magazine, oftentimes that information is months old, if not even older, I'd rather talk to somebody. I'd rather, you know, call up a scientist and say, "Hey, look over your shoulder and tell me what's on your on on your your your, your workspace right now. What are you working on right now?" Because yeah. I need that immediacy uh, so that when I write it, it still feels like it's fresh. That it's, it's you know it's it's happening right now. Um, and again, I'm I'm sometimes shocked what people will tell you. Uh, just to give you one example, in one of my early books, Deep Fathom. And I'm not ruining anything because it happens within the prologue of this novel is that I crashed the space shuttle. Oh. So when I was prepping to, to write this, I thought, well, you know, I knew that there was a new evacuation system put into the space shuttle after the Challenger tragedy. I just didn't know what it was. And so I thought, well, you know, I better make sure at least I know what that is. So I went on NASA's website and I'm perusing the, the numerous web pages and every other word on that web page is highlighted in blue, which sends you to another page. And after, sure. you know, a, an intense amount of research for about a minute and a half, I realized I'd, I'm not going to find this easily. I'm going to ask somebody. And so I just texted the website designer, figuring he put this together. He probably knows where I can find this or can give me this information. So I emailed him and said, hey, you know, I'm an author, New York Times bestselling author, working on this story. Can you, you know, help me? You know, I, I need to you know, cr- just crash the space shuttle in the scene. And I know there's a new evacuation system. Can you help me out? And, you know, send it out into the ether. And, uh, didn't know if I was going to get a response back. Hope I was going to get a response back. Uh, I was still working at that time. I, three days later, I come home, and leaning on my front door is the operations manual for the space shuttle. 
So, <laughs> theoretically, you know, if need be, I can pile up that space shuttle <laughs> to get off this planet for some reason. Now, it sort of gets a little bit weirder because it wasn't in a package. It was just literally the manual. It wasn't, you know, in, a, in an envelope with my address on it. It was just the manual leaning on my front door. That's great. Now, I was living in Sacramento at the time, which is, of course, the California state capital. They have, a, I'm sure at some point, a large aerospace lobby group somewhere in there, and they somehow, my message got passed up the chain of command to someone said, hey, shut this guy up. Can you just give him that manual? Let him figure it out. That's so I wanted, of course, to thank the gentleman who facilitated this, but I realized, you know, pulled up my old email to get his email address, and I realized in my original note, I never put my address what? I thought, that, I thought he was going to just reply by email. This is the, this is the um, evacuation system. There you go. So within three days, they found out who I was, where I lived, and delivered the, manu- delivered the manual. Now, I don't think story. it was so much the power of, you know, I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I think it was more the power of, I'm thinking of crashing the space shuttle. <laughs> At some point, that you know, raised some bells somewhere and, and and accelerated that whole process. I love it. That's a great okay, story. It's, it's shocking what people will tell you <laughs> if you just. Press it with, <laughs> I'm an author. Can you help me out? They'll tell you things that you know. The nuclear codes are what? Just a second. Let me get a pen and paper. When I was um, writing one of my books, I I toured a uh, military base in Texas and asked people who were in charge of our uh, stopping forward cyber threats, basically from Russia and China. I was like, yeah, I'm trying to send a message to a U.S. nuclear submarine to, to basically uh, fire a missile remotely, remotely send a message. I said, is there any way to do that? And the guy said, oh, it's easy. <laughs> I was like, it shouldn't be easy. You know, even if you tell me how, which he did, and I put in my book, it should not be Oh, that's easy. That should not be the first thing out of their mouth, you know. <laughs> so what, you know, you've written, uh, you know, with the same characters and the same team kind of appearing in different books. Um, do you find that when you're writing, the character comes first or the conflict comes first? Well, because, especially for that, I mean, I have a tendency to alternate between doing sort of a, one of the Sigma books, one of the uh, books in a series, and then doing a standalone. And the process is very different between the two. Because with the, the Sigma characters are already sort of, uh, you know, already there in their yeah. entirety. Uh, and I, this is now my 13th book in the series. So I, I know these characters very well. Um, so then it, it, it more is about, you know, what what story, what, what's the plot that I'm going to put these characters through? What's, you know... What roller coaster am I going to build for them to travel through in this next adventure? But when I when I'm doing my standalone, it's the reverse. I've got to figure out, you know, what you know what characters are going to populate that story. Because um, to me, yeah. again, that's the most important thing when it comes. Because again, if you build a fantastic roller coaster, if if you, your readers aren't attached to that character, they're not going to. You know, they're not. It might be a really cool roller coaster. It might have a lot of twists and turns and surprises and drops and twists. But again, if you're not attached to the characters, it, it feels a little bit dull. Yeah. So I'm doing my my individual adventures. Um, usually there is a concept at the back of my mind, a high concept I just described. But then I got to figure out who's the best to tell that story. Hmm. Um, and then that's where I build the character. And then after I got that character, I got the high concept, and then I'll build that roller coaster of a plot. So that's the the way I do the the standalones. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I like how it's a different, almost you know, you mentioned reverse process, or it's the other way around for the stories. And um, and so you're writing the same genre of story. It's just the process is completely different because of the familiarity that you have with your your characters at the uh, at the onset yeah um how important for you is authenticity in the science and history that you use to weave into your stories well that's a good question i mean i I definitely am going to take you somewhere weird in my story i'm going i'm going to take you you know to the edge of the horizon on some of the science and make you look over the edge um i'm looking at these historical mysteries i'm going to try to solve them and obviously 
some of that's going to be imaginative in that I'm going to be taking some interpretations of, of, of facts. But I try not to just, you know, pull it, you know, just out of thin air. Yeah. I try to, I try to ground it. At the end of all my books, I have a what's true, what's not section where I sort of pull aside the curtain and show you, you know, exactly how much is real and how much isn't. And if there's any of these topics that interest you, the science or the history, uh, and I'm going to leave you some breadcrumbs to follow. So if that historical mystery intrigued you, you know, read this book. If the science of this, uh, this aspect of the science intrigued you, you know, here's an article you might want to look at. So that hopefully, you know, when you close that book, um, you know, it has a little extra resonance that, you know, that it leaves something hopefully that you can pick up and follow from there. But again, think, yeah, authenticity, let's get back to that. Yeah. I get this question asked a lot, you know, where do you draw the line? You know, where do you go from uh, that, what's real from that article in that science magazine to the more imaginative place you're going to take the story? You know, where do you draw that line? And I have a rule of thumb. My rule of thumb is that if I'm going to put something in the story, I measure by two, uh, two methods. Number one is how cool is it? <laughs> the higher the cool factor, the more I'm willing to bend the science or the truth. Nice. Factor number two is how many people are really going to know I'm, try- I'm pulling a little bit of wool over your eyes regarding the, the, the factual basis of this, this, this part of this, this scene or this part of the story. Yeah. And my thing is, you know, if 99 people out of 100 aren't going to know that, you know, the, uh, uh, at the end of a telomere on a DNA molecule that, you know, it, it can, can control how long your lifespan is. Yeah. Most people aren't going to know the fine details of the science behind telomeres. So I'm, I could probably bend the truth a little bit here and there. And that one person out of 100 who's maybe thinking, oh, that's not right. If it's cool enough, he may still buy it. You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to roll with it because yeah. what you just did was pretty, pretty darn cool. So if I, if I can get those two things to, to line up, then you know, that's where I'll start to to play a little bit with, with the facts. But again, I, I try not to, 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 to claim that it's true. So at the end, I do sort of reveal exactly where I am. I think that's pretty cool that you do, you know, at the end, sort of say, if you're interested in more, here's where I bent the rules or, you know, took took fiction in one step more, but um, but it well, is I actually... I doing that for... I didn't, if it, my early novel, I, I don't, you, won't, you will not find that. Yeah. section. It's only later you'll start seeing that section appear in my books. And the reason for that is two, two reasons. Number one, I just got tired of, of, of answering a thousand emails about, you know, is this part true or was this part, you know, where did you get this information from? Yeah. Rather than answering, a, you know, a hundred questions over and over again about that aspect of the story, I think I'll just put it at the back of the book. I don't have to, I don't have to answer a bunch of emails about that. And number two was because of a one-star Amazon review. Not that I've oh. got more than one-star Amazon review. I've got many one-star Amazon reviews. <laughs> this particularly irked me because they were saying, hey, you know, I was reading you know, Jim's book and I was enjoying it, but I got to this part of the story and it was so outlandish it threw me out of the story. I could not even finish it. Yeah. I'm reading this review and I'm thinking, well... Admittedly, I'm going to take you somewhere strange in the story. I will admit that. Yeah. But that point that tripped you up, that was real. <laughs> so I can't go back and explain that to everybody. So I figure I'll just put this at the back of the book. So if anybody trips off at about a section of the story, they'll know whether they're tripped up because of something real or tripped up because of something that I am trying to pull the wool over your eyes about. I think that's what, you know, great storytellers take that nugget, take that that little, you know, for you, what you put in that box, that, and then start to look for those connections between things that no one else has noticed yet, and then they, they spin their tails, and, and, and we enjoy them, we love them. So I was curious a little bit of what types of stories draw you in, or maybe how you first got started telling this type of, of story. Did they engage you when you were younger, when you were a kid, or is it just a natural evolution from you telling entertaining stories to your siblings to you know eventually writing these bigger-than-life stories? Well, well, growing up, I, I, 
I read a bunch of different genres. I, I, I wasn't like a one-track type of guy. And you know, I read science fiction. I read fantasy. I read horror. I read mysteries. I read thrillers. You know, I grew up reading Michael Crichton and Clive Cussler and Stephen King, uh, and then a lot of the science fiction. Read Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein. Um, so I had a blend of different things I like to read. And I always tell, whenever I'm teaching writing, I always tell people, you know, you should you should write what you love to read. Mm-hmm. You don't chase the market. Don't write something that you think is hot, um, yeah. even though it might not appeal to you. Uh, again, I think readers can sense when you're just trying to chase the market. I think that you know, for you to understand a genre and write a really good book in that genre, you need to know that genre inside and out. So, again, when I first started writing, um, wasn't quite sure what I was going to write. Um, so the first novel I wrote, I thought I was writing a science fiction novel, um, but because I said it in, in, in present day, um, my editor said, no, this is science fiction, this is a thriller. And I thought, hmm. well, I've got, you know, I've got telepathic marsupial creatures that live underneath Antarctica. <laughs> Isn't that science fiction? She goes, no, as long as they live, those telepathic marsupial creatures are living today, it's a thriller. Okay. <laughs> I love it. So, you know, I, I, I have a tendency to blend genres a little bit, um, you know, because I love to read a different bunch of different genres. You'll see, you know, a little bit of, you know, science fiction in my books. You'll see a little bit of, you know, Clive Cuslow's Clive adventure fiction. You know, I've got a team of uh, military soldiers that will use some pretty cool military tech a la, you know, Clancy. I've got the science of Michael Crichton in there. Just because that's what I love to read. So yeah. I have a tendency to, you know, throw everything in the kitchen sink into my books to the point where when HarperCollins, my publisher, I published, I think, about eight or nine of my books at this point. I had never actually been to New York and visited my publishing house. So at one point, uh, they invited me over there to meet the, the, you know, the whole publishing staff. So, you know, I go to New York and... I'm in this big boardroom, and everybody's gathered there at the table. There's the you know marketing team and uh, the cover design team and the international people. I don't know. The whole group of people are there. Yeah. But at the end of the table is the, the head of Harper Collins, and he sort of stands up and looks over across this long table at me and goes, Jim, you know, we published a few of your books, um, but to be honest with you, we're not quite sure what you write. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay yeah. with you know not quite because you know yes they they want to know where to shelf your book in a in a bookstore yeah but you know I I like to sort of uh, I'm okay with you know having a little bit of everything in those in those books that's what I love to read and again that's what I like to write. Um. When uh, when you talk, you you can just tell that your passion is for telling these these amazing stories, and it isn't toward being labeled one thing or being pigeonholed into one area. And I know that today a lot of people talk about brand, and I have the sense that that's what this um, executive was trying to do. What's your brand? Where? How can we brand you as exactly. this character or whatever? Um, is is that something you've had to deal with this? idea of branding before do you just say look I'm my own brand I am what I am exactly I mean that, that they it's easier to sell a brand yeah and that's you know that's why you know it's easy to sell toilet paper on television you know you can sell a brand easier than you can something that's that's more amorphous so there is an attempt to keep trying to brand you and I keep trying to somewhat you know slide out of that box. You know, yeah. Because, you know, one of my novels might lean more towards history. Uh, like Demon Crown deals with the history about the founding of America, and that's the, it's very history-oriented. Um, other books are very science-oriented. So, it, and then there's the gambit in between there, which I play in. Um, you know, my stories have, you know, very strong female characters in them, and, and they have a romantic element to them. So they've, you know, they pushed me into going to, you know, RT, Romantic Times Festivals, and RWA, um, because the books, you know, you know, even though they seem like they might be more sort of, you know, male action fiction, uh, they have... Yeah. You know, a very strong appeal. A good portion of my my readership, despite my subject matter, is is still more female than it is than it is men that read my books. And I think it's because of the characters and the relationships that are in the story that 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 do uh, hopefully read authentic to to 
women that read the books. Absolutely. So again, yeah. I'm okay with not being able to brand me. Um, yeah. I mean, I've I've got to you know somewhat known as you know this guy that does sort of blend history and science together. Um, and I guess that's as close to a brand as that my publishing house is going to get out of me. <laughs> Well, that's good. I don't think you need to worry too much about it. I think your name kind of encapsulates, you know, your own brand. Um, which brings me to my next question, which is you're really known for your ability to write non-formulaic stories. They're not all cookie-cutter, you know, stories with the same exact approach and so on. Is that a conscious decision of yours, or are there specific, I don't know, plot techniques that you use beneath the surface? You know, it's definitely nothing that I, I, I plan in advance. I don't go, gosh, you know, I, I did this last time, so I'm going to do it this time. Though I, yeah. there is some exception to that. You know, a lot of times I'll I'll just realize, hey, my last you know two books both dealt with you know the biological sciences. You know, maybe I need to you know not do a third biologically driven science story. Uh, sure. Maybe I need to look somewhere else, or maybe I you know this book was really heavy in you know science. Maybe I you know look more at the history in this next book. So there is some consciousness of of, of not feeling like I'm doing the same thing over and over again by switching gears a little bit. So that is something that that is. Uh, in the forefront from look, when I'm looking at that next story to write. In regards to, to t- the way I tell the story, it, it's all driven by the story I want to tell. Um, you know, sometimes with a group especially, I have the freedom to shift that spotlight. Be, uh, again, just backtrack it to just a moment, is that I was getting a lot of push besides the branding by my publishing house was they wanted a series out of me. Oh, right. And all of my early books were all... Standalones. Uh, they were individual adventures. I didn't want to do a series because I had issues with with series characters a little bit. Uh, number one, and I was jokingly referred to it as the Jessica Fletcher syndrome, where Jessica Fletcher is the main character from the television series Murder She Wrote. Okay, sure. And here is this one old woman that, for some reason, is always stumbling over dead bodies. <laughs> I've never stumbled over a dead body what is wrong with this woman that she's always stumbling over dead bodies. So eventually it begins to strain the, uh, your, your, your credibility or credibility. credibility. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, you begin to not quite buy it. And, uh, you know, to me, the only resolution that would have made sense for murder, she wrote would have been the final episode that reveals that Jessica Fletcher is a serial killer. <laughs> and she's been murdering all these people all along and framing everybody else. Then it would make sense that she has this many dead bodies, in, you know, in, in her wake. <laughs> But the other I problem know. I had with uh, with with a series character is is Jeopardy. Um, you know, as m- someone might put a gun against Jessica Fletcher's head in an episode, but you know that trigger's never going to be pulled because you know from the TV guide that she's in next week's episode. Sure. So it's hard to maintain tension. So I, I preferred having standalones where you know the Jeopardy can come from many different directions and everybody's at risk because there's you know there's no sequel to this book. Yeah. Whereas the series character, then you get your hands bound a little bit. Um, and so when I wrote the novel Sandstorm, where Sigma Force first appears, I thought it was just a standalone. Um, until I sort of, sort of liked these characters from Sigma Force, these you know, sort of scientists with guns that were you know, out there protecting the U.S. against various threats. And I thought, hey, maybe I could build a series around a group of characters instead yeah. of a single character. And that got me around a lot of the Jessica syndrome, Jessica Fletcher syndrome issues. Number one is that the Jeopardy can come from many different directions because the cast of character is is, is larger, yeah. and also Jeopardy because Sigma Force can always recruit a new member. Uh, nobody's necessarily safe. Uh, you know, I can kill off a major character, which I've done multiple times in the course of the series, uh, much to the shock of some of my readers. <laughs> Because a then everybody's on pins and needles about who's Jim going to who's Jim going to kill off next. Uh, so when I put my characters in jeopardy, they're thinking he might really kill his character off in this book. Yeah, um, and it also allows me to to keep that freshness, that 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 feel like you're not reading the same book over and over again. Is that I can shift the spotlight of of that or focus 
of a certain book onto different characters. Like in you know this book, we're going to look more at you know Monk's life, uh, one of one of Gray's companions. In the next book, you know Kowalski is going to be the sort of the uh, the one that we're going to look more into it, into that character's life. So I can I can shift that spotlight around, so it doesn't feel like you're always just uh, looking squarely in the eyes of one character throughout the entire series. You know, I've never heard uh, it explained really so succinctly and well, this differentiation between it with the, the, the syndrome that you mentioned, also the Jeopardy issue. But I think those are really good points. Um, now that I think to different series and, that I've read, I think that um, that's a really insightful way to look at it. Well, you know, I occasionally hear people say with the series, hey, you know, this author is, you know, it's feeling like their stories are getting tired and old, and I'm getting a little bored with the series. And I, you know, I don't want anybody to say that with my book. Um, and I think on my series, so my goal of doing that is I think one of the reasons why people can get a little bored and have a series start to feel stale is because of that, those reasons, is that, you know, you begin to realize that he's never going to kill off that main character. And, you know, and we're always sort of in that character's life. And I'm getting, you know, I'm feeling like I'm overstaying my welcome in this series. And that's why I think it begins to feel stale. Whereas, again, if if I can, you know, mix it up a little bit, have some characters you're familiar with, but shine a light maybe on some of these characters that were sort of on the periphery in previous books. Uh, so it feels, you know, a little fresher. Um, hopefully I'll keep some of that staleness, that feel of staleness out of the series. Well, speaking about um, a series and something that is not stale, your new book, The Demon Crown, is just um, released. And uh, what can you tell us about this book that um, that for many readers maybe who haven't read some of your books before, that you could um, give us a hint to what this one, what, what's going on in this book? Well, this book, I'm somewhat proud because my, my editor at one point said, you know, this, you know, this book freaked me out, Jim, which I thought was great. <laughs> you know, she's been with me since, she's, which is a rarity. I've had the same editor since my very first book. So this is my 34th book. She's been with me from book one. Wow. So to have her say that this book freaked out more than any other book I've written, yay. <laughs> but, you know, I'll just give you the thumbnail, uh, you know, the elevator pitch for the story is the novel starts as a, a group of scientists. Uh, they stumble across an island uh, off the coast of Brazil, and they discover that all life has been eradicated off this island. And it's been consumed by this uh, sort of strange species. Uh, but before they can report their discovery, they, this group is attacked. They all seem to, seem to be killed except for one, an entomologist. He's an expert on venomous creatures. And this sort of one event blows up into the, the global threat when the same species that attacked that island is unleashed across the Hawaiian Islands. Basically, like almost like a biological Pearl Harbor. And as people begin to die by the hundreds... This organism seems to like, you know, the only way they seem like they can maybe get rid of it is they may have to nuke the Hawaiian Islands, just keep these from spreading. So Sigma Force is called in, they, they have to figure out, you know, where did this thing come from? What exactly is it? And at the same time they try to do that, the organism is changing, it's growing, it's spreading, it's adapting, and it does begin to spread. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a fun story. But again, and I love that it that it frightened your um, <laughs> your editor. It's pretty creepy. It's pretty. Yeah. It's a pretty creepy little story. And and again, I like I like that. I'm always looking for that topicality. And so you know, one of the origins for the story was that I had gotten a. Um, I probably shouldn't tell this, but occasionally a certain member of Homeland Security will send me information. Uh huh. That's all I'll say. <laughs> he sent me like the the top ten things that keep Homeland Security up at night. And amongst that list was one that sort of surprised me. Um, and it was not even like in the lower ten. It was in the top five about their concerns about a threat to the U.S. And one of the, the threats they're concerned about is the invasive species. Now, these are, you know, foreign invaders to our shores. Yeah. And we're all familiar with, you know, the pythons that got loose in the Everglades and now are running amok. Uh, there's Asian carps that are in our lakes and rivers that are, that are causing decimation to a lot of our natural uh, fish populations yeah. out there. What Homeland Security is, is concerned about is what if somebody weaponizes one of these species and releases it in, into the U.S. 
because they have at this point have almost no defenses against that. Um, if a hostile power is serious about it, uh, they can introduce a hostile species into the U.S. with very little effort because we have very little way of restricting that from happening. And as we've seen with the pythons and with the Asian carp and some of several other species, once it's established in an environment, it's almost impossible to get rid of. Yeah. And it can wreak havoc from an agricultural standpoint uh, or it can wreak havoc if it's a direct threat to us. So that's something that you know, I sort of shine a light on in this book is, you know, what if someone did weaponize one of those species? What might happen? I love it, and um, and I can't wait to to finish it. I have a copy of it right here by my bedside. So as I dive deeper in, now I've got a little bit of the um, the inside scoop for <laughs> where the story's going to go. Um, so for aspiring writers and storytellers, do you have any words of advice for shaping and telling? more engaging stories. I know that you do teach at different events and conferences. Um, maybe there's a, maybe a weakness that you see in some of the work of aspiring authors. or What do you like to share with them? Well, I'll tell you, you know, how I learned to write. Like I said, my, my, as I mentioned at the beginning, was that I always wanted to be a veterinarian. It was my career track. I didn't take any writing classes in college. I pretty much want to write towards being a vet. But I read a lot. Mm-hmm. And because I had that weird little imaginative side of my brain that was twisting these stories with my kids, with my siblings rather, is it was like you know reading, which I continued to do, was like throwing gasoline on that twisted corner of my brain. <laughs> and I thought, you know, one of these days it'd be fun to be able to you know walk into a bookstore and see my book on the shelf. But it seemed like a pipe dream. You know, I, I had my day job as a veterinarian, and it seemed sort of more you know something that I could never reach. But then over time, I thought, well, if I'm going to try it, I should probably try it. But I thought, gosh, you know, I've had no training in writing. And if you read in my books, you'll go, gosh, Jim's had no training in writing. Uh, <laughs> but where I learned to read, I mean, where I learned to write was by reading. Yeah. Um, so there's the old adage, um, you, know, you should write every day which I firmly believe you need to practice your craft. Uh, you need to, you know, there's an old adage, you should write a million words before you should expect to be published. Mm. So, you know, get cracking, get work, working on that million words. You need to be writing every day and working towards that million word goal. But at the same time, I had my own little uh, uh, footnote to that write every day adage, which is you should read every night. Mm. Because whatever problem you have with your writing day, whether it's, you know, how do you, Introduce this character, describe a character without having them look in a mirror. Yeah. How do you, you know, do dialogue that feels authentic? As you write during your day and you're struggling with that problem in your writing day, it forms a knot in your head. And when you read at night and you see an example of how that problem was solved by that author, it begins to untie that knot unconsciously. You begin to sort of, now you're paying attention to what the author's doing because you were struggling with that during your day, and you're going to see how it's done well. And so by writing every day and reading every night, you're going to find that your prose is getting stronger and stronger. And I still let, do that to this day. I still, when I'm reading, uh, you know, I don't have a tendency to say I have two books. I have a book I take to the gym, and I have the book that I, I read at night before I go to bed. And I always have a notepad with me. And I, to this day, I still see tricks that an author will do. I go, I, that's a clever way of doing that. I will make a note, and I'll add to my writerly toolbox, and hopefully down the line maybe be able to incorporate that tool into my writing. So when it you know, comes to, to learning the craft of, is, you know, rather than reinvent the wheel, there's a lot of wheels out there. When I wrote my first novel, Subterranean, I had a copy of Jurassic Park on the shelf above my desk. Because I wasn't quite sure how to structure a novel. Yeah. So I thought, well, when does Michael Crichton, you know, kill off his first character? Well, that's when I'm going to kill off my first character. You know, when do you see the first dinosaur in Jurassic Park? Well, that's where you're going to see one of my creatures for the first time. When does the antagonist, the villain, walk onto stage? That's when my villain's going to walk onto stage. Um, so, you know, to me, there are a lot of wheels out there. Don't need to reinvent them. Uh, so just, you know, write every day, but... You know, read every night because that's where you're going to find you're going to see your best examples for improving your craft. I think that is great advice, and I really appreciate you being on the show today. Um, not only are you a uh, well-researched and an articulate writer, but also a very articulate uh, storyteller to have on on the show. Thank you. So I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the time. 
Yeah, where is the best place for people to connect with you online? Maybe when you're doing a book signing or uh, to reach out, um, maybe to find out about your newsletter. Well, I've, I've got a website. I think any author does. It's a very cleverly, it's jamesrollins.com, and uh, there I always consider this my the encyclopedia of James Rollins. If you want to know about books and you know all my books, and there's a section about how to write, and there's some articles and blog things. So it's a bunch of stuff about me. But if you want sort of a day in day out, what it means to be a writer, join me on Facebook, on social media, Twitter. I love social media. I, I like to be able to bounce ideas off of, of my uh, people that follow me on social media. Oftentimes I'll say, hey, you know, I'm stuck on this story. You know, who should Gray, you know, pick, Rachel or Seishan? Vote now. <laughs> Vote uh, now. It's fun, having that, it's fun having that immediacy between the, uh, the, the, the reader and, and author. So that's been a great deal of fun. So, again, Encyclopedia of Knowledge, com. If you want sort of a day-in, day-out uh, nitty-gritty of what's going on in my life, both from a personal and professional standpoint, join my social media, either on Facebook or Twitter. That's where I spend this time. Yeah, if people haven't read your books before, would you, say they, uh, would you suggest that they start with this newest one, The Demon Crown, or is there another place that would be good for them to get started with your series? Well, that definitely, when I do my series, I structure each novel so it's a standalone. You know, yeah. At this point, I don't think... Very few people have read my series in order. They usually you know, walk by an airport bookstore, see the current book that's out there. They'll pick it up. They'll read it. If they like it, hopefully they'll, they'll go back and read the rest of the series. And, and I know that that's what I do with series. Oftentimes I'll jump in the middle, and sometimes I don't like when, when I'm lost. So I yeah. specifically make sure that if you're picking up Demon Crown for the first time, you're not going to feel like you're missing out. Um, yes, if you follow the series in order, there's some nuance of character that develops over time, but you don't need that to enjoy the current book. So if you feel like it, you know, jump right into Demon Crown. Sounds great. Um, to find out more about our other guests and to check out other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. My uh, website is stephenjames.net. And our conference in Atlanta in October is, all the information is at characterconference.com. If you're a screenwriter or novelist and you're interested in creating better characters, check that out. Use the code ALUMNI to save some money. Alumni in caps. Also, thanks to Suspense Radio for hosting us. And please do subscribe to all of their great podcasts. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.